0: Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through commitment to reading. This is Phoebe Kotlikoff, and this week I'm sitting down with retired Lieutenant Commander Reuben Keith Green. Lieutenant Commander Green is a retired Navy surface warfare officer. He served 22 years in the Atlantic Fleet from 1975 to 1997. Before his 1984 commissioning, he was a mineman, yeoman, equal opportunity program specialist, and a leadership instructor. He is the author of Black Officer, White Navy. Lieutenant Commander Green, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, sir, first things first, what are you reading?
1: I am reading a book called All Blood Runs Red. It's a story about Eugene Bullard, who was a young man from the South who went to France when he was 14 or 15, became a uh, pilot, uh, a soldier in the French Foreign Legion, a spy, and a business owner.
0: No surprise. I always get great recommendations on this show. So speaking of books, I have been reading yours, Black Officer, White Navy and I know that you have referred to the process of writing it as therapeutic. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to write it, when you wrote it, and what the process was like?
1: Well, I decided to write it over a period of many years. Uh, I left the Navy with a a bitter taste in my mouth, as my father had done before him. Um, But I thought about it for about 10 years, And then I started writing it in the run-up to the um, uh, election of President Barack Obama. And once he got elected, I said, well, there's no need to write this book. We're in a post-racial world now, so um, we won't have any more issues with racism. Uh, And I put it away for about 10 years until the run-up to the 2016 election. I dusted it off because I was having flashbacks of some of my experiences in the Navy. And that's when I decided to go ahead and finish it. And I wrote it because I had a lot of unresolved issues trying to make sense of some of the things that had happened to me. And I thought about what other uh, sailors might be going through in the Navy. So I decided to put it out there.
0: While I was reading it, I was struck a few times by a particular set of circumstances. You would be serving in a role. I think the two that really stuck out to me were when you were the Equal Opportunity Program Specialist, and then also when you were just reporting as engineer officer for your second sea duty. And you are going to do your job and a humongous firestorm breaks out in the media about, um, you know, whether it's a Brookings report or a big media story about mistreatment of minorities in the military. Can you talk a little bit about what it felt like to continue to go to your job in the middle of a media firestorm centered on people who look like you?
1: Well, in both of those jobs, I was one of the very few black people Mm -hmm. in either the command or the ship. And whenever there's a firestorm like that in the media, it bleeds over into the military community as it's doing now. When I was the equal opportunity program specialist, there were two things that happened that were significant. One was the, uh, Liberty City riots in Miami when Arthur McDuffie was beaten to death by the police Mm -hmm. and followed shortly thereafter by the hanging of Michael Donald in Mobile, Alabama. So I was reporting to that job as an equal opportunity program specialist, as a young second class, the the junior person on the staff. So anyone that had any personal animosity uh, towards black people, I was a logical target. When I went to be the chief engineer on a frigate, I was the only black officer on the ship. I was a frocked lieutenant. I was a junior uh, department head in the entire Atlantic Fleet, and uh, President Reagan was railing against affirmative action and uh, Martin Luther King Holiday, et cetera. And then shortly before I reported to the ship, the Willie Horton ad came out, which was uh, quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, once again, I'm in an environment where there's a lot of racial animosity or hostility, and I'm the only black person. Or one of the only black persons in that environment. and uh, i I believe that was part of the reason i I experienced some of the difficulties I did in that uh, engineering tour.
0: You talk about how um it was commonplace for people to come up to you once you'd been commissioned and say, Sir, you're only an officer because you're black because of affirmative action. and um and so then you, you know you would say, Are you kidding me??" listen listen to how I got here. Would you talk a little bit about what that felt
1: like? Oh, I would love those teed up softballs because they just assumed that I, I was put in that position because of affirmative action. The president was railing very frequently about affirmative action and how it was harming the country, et cetera. So a young sailor or an officer would walk up to me and just casually mention, well, the only reason you're an officer is because of affirmative action. And I would explain to them that I dropped out of high school at 17, joined the Navy got my associate's degree in the first two years, got my bachelor's degree a couple of years after that, in my spare time on the GI bill and with tuition assistance, applied for OCS like any other officer would, officer candidate would, and got selected for OCS. And I would ask him, where is the affirmative action part of that? Explain to me how my being black uh, uh, contributed to me getting a commission when I did it, working two jobs and performing as a a peak performer on active duty, and sometimes working a part-time job on the side. So that would uh, cause them to put their tail between their legs and slink away.
0: And can I ask your personal views on affirmative action?
1: I think affirmative action was an absolute necessity. When Ronald Reagan was uh, railing against that, all of the service chiefs, many of the college presidents, Secretary of Defense, they were all saying how it was necessary to help correct the imbalance because of the prevailing racism that had existed for decades. So I agree with Colin Powell. I'll give you a story. Colin Powell was passed over for promotion. The Secretary of the Army, when he was a Colonel, the Secretary of the Army rejected that list and said, I want you to go back and take another look at the uh, candidates that were not selected, that are minorities. And when they did, Colin Powell made the list. Had he not been selected because there was bias in the selection process, we never would have had Chairman uh, Colin Powell, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So if the leadership isn't paying attention uh, and just accepting that the bias is out of the system, it can harm people that are really top performers.
0: So I've, I've been thinking about the way that we choose our mentees and what a tremendous difference that makes for individual careers, it is so easy for senior people to feel like, you know, we, I'm going to say myself included, are not part of the problem when in reality we are picking people who look like us, picking people who think like us, picking people who act like us to be our mentees, changing the trajectory of their careers, and um, and it's at the expense
1: of others. They pick people that let them uh, allow them to stay in their comfort zone. They don't have to stretch. They don't have to think outside of the, the normal circumstances, and that makes it easy for them. So do you
0: have any experiences that stick out to you with mentorship that you think either made a positive or negative difference in your career?
1: Well, my first uh, skipper, my second skipper, was a man named Jim Barton. I didn't know this until long after we both had retired, but he was one of the young Turks that Zumwalt put uh, in positions of responsibility early. And he was the guy that got me started off really well on my first tour. He trusted me. He liked me. He taught me a lot. And um, I think he was a wonderful leader. And he encouraged me 10 years before I published my book. I sent him a draft and he said, Keith, you need to finish this. This is important. Mm-hmm. So he was a very important uh, 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 leader for me. The other one that jumps right into mind is uh, Master Chief Daniel Zapiro, Signalman Master Chief Daniel Zapiro. He saved me when I was in that equal opportunity billet. Mm -hmm. Had it not been for him, I might have left the Navy at the 10-year point as a bitter and disillusioned uh, sailor like my father did.
0: Mm. And I'm glad you mentioned Admiral Zumwalt. So you write extensively in your book. You pepper in little vignettes about the influence that Admiral Zumwalt had, and you highlight the contributions of his minority affairs assistant, Bill Norman. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you see um, Admiral Zumwalt, whose career ended right before you joined the Navy, having had an impact on your career?
1: Well, I think Bill Norman is the unsung hero of integration in, in the Navy. He had submitted a resignation letter because he'd been on every board, every panel, et cetera. Uh, the Navy had to eliminate race relations. I first heard of him watching, uh, reading the news and uh, news articles, but then in the eighties, I read a book called Bloods. It was by Wallace Terry, a journalist, uh, in Vietnam. And he interviews 20 different African-American veterans. And Bill Norman happened to be one of the, uh, I think it was two or three Navy people that interviewed. And that interview really stuck with me because uh, this man went to be interviewed by Zoomwalt. Zoomwalt wanted to talk to him before he approved his resignation and he wanted them to come work for him. Well, Bill Norman showed up with a list of uh, demands these are the things that we need to change in the Navy. And Zumwalt later said, I called him in to interview uh, him, and it turns out he's interviewing me. Mm. And that relationship, <laughs> that personal relationship literally changed the course of the Navy. Mm. There's a book called Zumwalt by Larry Berman. It's a biography. It is an excellent book in terms of filling in the gaps that, in my knowledge that existed. And I would recommend that all uh, all Navy leaders read that.
0: I'm adding that to my list right away as well. All Blood Runs Red and Zumwalt. Right. So I want to go back again to an earlier part of your career. You're still an enlisted man and you become an equal opportunity program specialist for the Navy. And I think it's safe to say it wasn't a fabulous experience for you in the Navy being an equal opportunity program specialist.
1: That is correct. I was warned against taking that job because I had a black chief who told me, Keith, this this will probably end your career. Mm -hmm. But I decided to do it because I had seen so much much injustice in the two years prior to that, where I was the mass yeoman for the Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I had to compile all of what was called the equal opportunity quality indicators and they showed how military discipline was administered. And consistently the black sailors were punished more harshly than the white sailors for the same offenses. Mm -hmm. And I got to see that every Friday up close. And I realized that when the black sailors tried to speak up and talk about the disparities between the way they were treated and the white sailors were treated, they would get shut down and would make the captain angry and he would add additional punishment. So I developed a standard punishment guide to be used to make sure that things were fair. And that didn't work because the captain would override that and add what he thought it, it had, it was a, it was a matter of the young black sailors speaking up when they weren't supposed to, or at least in the captain's eyes. And I like to uh, think of it as not staying in their place. So it was a a form of legalized extra punishment.
0: Mm. So I want to ask you how you think your experience was different as an enlisted man than it was as an officer.
1: As an enlisted man, because I had some jobs that were pretty close to the centers of power and the command I was in, for the most part, uh, it was um, little stuff other than the problem I had with the Master Chief, which nearly destroyed my career. Mm-hmm. And then once I got a good boss, Master Chief Shapiro, things were fine. When I went to Light Attack Wing One and worked for the Wing Commander there at Cecil Field, he thought I walked on water. He wrote my endorsement for Officer Candidate School and off I went. Mm-hmm. As an officer, the truth is a lot of the people that worked for me resented having to work for a black man, a Mm -hmm. lot of Southerners, a lot of people that felt like I was inferior. Some of my peers, uh, almost all of my peers uh, did not relate to me well, because for many of them, I was the first black guy. They had to interact with as an equal and almost every boss I had in the Navy, almost everyone was a Southerner. So they had very distinct uh, personal beliefs about um race relations and i would butt up against some of those beliefs when i was trying to do my job and it was uh it was difficult because i never ever raised the issue of race ever until the very last job that i had and that was because i was forced to
0: mm-hmm. and i want to read a quote from your book that i think gets straight to this point you write discrimination is a societal problem and a military one We bring our prejudices with us into the military or form them while there. I'm sharing my experiences with you in the hopes that they will become as rare as Black officers once were. We're still rare, but not like before. This quote stuck out to me a lot as I've been thinking about um, my peers and our responsibility. You know, the SecDef has dictated that leaders will talk about this. Leaders will start conversations on this topic in an effort to learn from each other and drive progress. So if you had some advice to share with young leaders, feeling some stress about how to start these conversations, what would you say?
1: I would say, don't be afraid to start the conversation and what is most important is that once you start the conversation, you have to be willing to let it go where the individual that you're talking to wants it to go. It may be uncomfortable for you. You don't have to have all the answers, but if you're willing to listen and begin to get some understanding, that will help you change your perspective because you will never be able to walk into that, in that woman's or that uh, that young man's shoes, but you can at least understand why they feel the way that they do. And once you start gaining that understanding, you won't look at situations the same way you did before. Is there in fact, possibly something in this scenario that may have something to do with bias or discrimination? And that's an uncomfortable place for people to go when they realize that one of their peers may be discriminating against one of their subordinates or you know, uh, one of their peers may be discriminating against another of their peers, but it does in fact happen.
0: the sitting with the discomfort part is something that i think it's tough for people to make that leap if they haven't before and um so something i've been thinking about a lot is what what are the best ways to educate yourself on this topic um if you don't live th- live it do you have particular recommendations other than zoomwald and all blood runs red
1: well the internet is full of information. Mm-hmm. You Google racism and any topic and thousands of uh, thousands of uh, results come up, but you have to, in order to understand what is happening, you have to be willing to read. If you will read and you will listen to uh, the people that you're asking, I, I recommend people just, you know, look at, you know, books on the African American experience. There's a book by Rear Admiral Larry Chambers, or it's written by a, uh, Rick Murphy about the first black uh, flag officer aviation in the in the Navy, and it's a great book. Admiral Chambers uh, graduated from the Naval Academy in '52. He became a pilot. He experienced discrimination. I didn't know this at the time, but when I was in boot camp and uh, Saigon was being evacuated, he was the CEO of one of the carriers out there, and he received an order from the embarked admiral to uh, tell this Cessna that was coming out with a major and his family, four kids and a pregnant wife, to uh, ditch the ship in the water and then they would rescue. Well, Admiral Chambers knew that they would not survive that. So he disobeyed that order, had um, the deck cleared of helicopters and whatnot. And before the Cessna could land, some other helicopters came in and landed on the ship. And then they had to get those people out and then throw all of that uh uh aviation uh, those aircraft over overboard and finally that major was able to land his aircraft on the deck of that flight uh aircraft carry and the entire flight deck burst into cheers mm. that major went on to become a productive member of society so did his children and that plane is now in an uh, aviation museum in pensacola admiral chambers was expecting to get court-martialed for disobeying an order and instead he got a meritorious service medal not many people know that story. I didn't know it. It happened in 75 and I didn't know it until two years ago.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's true heroism and, uh, and courage. I mean, incredible personal courage. Mm -hmm. Another topic that you touch on quite a bit in your book is, um, the role of forgiveness in, uh, thinking about the people who mistreated you and the the circumstances you found yourself in. Can you talk a little bit on your philosophy with respect to forgiveness?
1: It took me a long time to get past the bitterness because I felt like that the the organization I'd spent my entire adult life serving let me down when I needed them the most. So it took me a long time to get past the bitterness. But once I wrote the story out, I realized that holding on to that was was harming me i was already harmed but holding on to that was not productive what was productive was telling my story and getting the word out to prevent other people from having to experience what i did so i'm no longer uh angry or bitter at anyone that that um, uh, mistreat me mistreated me uh, i have the philosophy that success is the best revenge and my success is getting the story out and enabling other people. I've had so many people contact me that had similar experiences and thank me for sharing my story because uh, including um, people that I've never heard of, mm-hmm. I mean, just, it's, it's amazing the outpouring. I just got a call yesterday from a guy who was in the Navy and his father was in the Navy at the same time my father was. His father's 82 years old and he wants to talk to me. Saturday, I got a call from a 90-year-old Jewish man who, Um, was in the Navy in the 50s and he spent an hour uh, recounting stories to me and I could hear the pain in his voice Mm. as he talked about things that happened to him, you know, in the 50s in Green Coast Springs, Florida. So I feel like I have been able to get people to to start to talk about some of their own experiences. Um, um, Jonathan Shea, the author of Achilles in Vietnam, I Mm -hmm. spent uh, some time talking to him And his book, Achilles in Vietnam, was a real eye-opener for me. I realized that what I was experiencing was normal considering the trauma that I had endured for decades. And he said uh, storytelling is a uh, narrative. Storytelling is the first step towards healing.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm also I'm glad you brought up your father, who was also a Navy man for many years. And you write in your book that he was not supportive of your decision to join the Navy. And you go through in the book and sort of try to dissect why that may have been. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: My father had uh, lots of bitter experiences in the Navy. He joined the Army at 17, earned his jump wings in in the Army, was uh, in a tank battalion in Korea. And then after the Army, he left the Army and joined the Navy. He served on at least eight ships he was on the the pbrs the uh, patrol boats in vietnam um but he left the navy because he just couldn't endure the racism anymore uh he left early he he said that um when they picked him up and took him to the brig in jacksonville florida he told them what took you guys so long i've been expecting you so he got out with a uh, a little less than 18 years in the service. And he just refused to go back. They, they offered to let him come back in when I joined, but he was adamant that I would not join the Navy. And the only thing he would tell me was the Navy is too racist. I'm not signing the papers for you to join the Navy. And I explained to him, well, Admiral Zumwalt has fixed all that. I mean, it's been all in the papers. And he just looked at me like, son, you have no idea what you're talking about. And he was right.
0: You know, there have been a number of very moving articles and, um, you know, personal narratives published over the last few weeks that also speak to this point that we may feel sometimes like we're in a post-racial world, but we are certainly not. And um, we still have a lot of work to do. So on that note, what, uh, what words would you have for the next generation of service members?
1: My philosophy is when you're experiencing a problem you need to keep a will book. You need to document what's happening and don't assume it's race right off the bat. It may not be race, but you need to keep a will book that shows how you're being treated in relation to how other people are being treated. If you're asked to do something, do it to the best of your ability. If you're asked to do it again, do it again the same way. And if it looks like you're being singled out, ask why you keep getting these details and the other person doesn't. Whatever the answer is, write it in your will book the next thing you do is try to strip away everything that it might be other than race. And when you've stripped away everything else, that's when you have the conversation. Do you have a problem with me because of who I am, how I look, et cetera. And I've had people tell me, well, yeah, I think it's personal. Now we can get somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, because until we both acknowledge what the issue is, we're just going to dance around it. So, But that's the advice I would give. Do not be afraid to walk up and knock them on the forehead and say, we need to talk.
0: Mm -hmm. And force people to confront their own, whether it's acknowledged bias or subconscious bias.
1: I can give you a perfect illustration of that. When I was deploying to the Persian Gulf, I had a fire and explosion a month before I was supposed to deploy. Um, and I was having to order lots of parts. Obviously you've got $2 million worth of repairs and my supply officer was not ordering my parts. He was dragging his feet, jerking me around, delaying uh, ordering parts, canceling parts. I talked to the captain, I talked to the XO, I talked to the other department heads, I talked to the supply officer and his chief. I got a perfect 4.0 in material management officer candidate school. So I understood the supply system. I just didn't understand what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. So I sat up all night with uh, my supply petty officer and created this spreadsheet that did not exist in the supply system. And that spreadsheet contained the the 25 most critical parts that I needed. And I'd gone through the system and pulled out and plugged in all of these numbers uh, on that spreadsheet. It stayed up all night. It was daylight when the captain came aboard and I went up and showed it to him. And once he saw that spreadsheet and called the supply officer up there to explain it, he couldn't explain it. And I was the only one having these problems. The captain fixed that but I wanted to go a step further and uh, explore why the only black officer on the ship was having all these problems getting his parts. My captain was from Texas, he didn't wanna talk about it and I couldn't force him to, but it was obvious to me that I was being discriminated against. That supply officer almost made that ship not deploy on time because he thought it was fun to screw with me, the only black officer on the ship. But too many times people avoid having those conversations. There's another good book, called It's Your Ship by mm-hmm. Captain Michael Abershaw. He talked about confronting racism at Captain's Mass between a black and a white sailor, and he stayed there for a long time until they finally got down to the issue of what it was, and it was a black and white issue. You have to be willing to have those conversations. Otherwise, the um, it just shifts to another another uh, uh, incident or another area. Until you can lay it all out on the table, you're just you know just pushing it down the road. Kicking the can down the road.
0: So also perfect segue into an article that you wrote recently for proceedings, the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings on the Navy's legacy with institutional racism. And one example of this is in the fact that we have an aircraft carrier named after John C. Stennis, who was for the majority of his life, an ardent segregationist, um, can you talk a little bit about your argument in the essay and why you think this is important?
1: Well, I think it's important because aircraft symbol aircraft carriers are the symbols of America's power. If I were in a foreign country and an aircraft carrier pulled in and I would see the name, I would want to Google the name of the aircraft carrier and see who this great person was. And when I read that that person was uh, responsible for torturing black people into confessing and then fighting all the way to the Supreme Court, He was against uh, equality. He was against um, civil rights movement. And I would ask myself, why would the Navy name an aircraft carrier after a person like this? And on top of that, I could not imagine myself serving in that aircraft carrier. Crew members are always proud of their ship and the names to take of their ship. That's why those names are chosen. Um, So I think it's just a travesty that minority sailors have to go serve on that ship. And you can imagine some young, um, smart-alecky white kid from Alabama saying, well, you know, Stennis was a diehard racist, right? And that puts a psychological burden on that young black person. No one's saying anything directly, but they're, it's almost as though they're making fun of the person. And how do you feel proud of serving in a ship that's named after an ardent segregationist or white supremacist? Right. I would find that very difficult.
0: Right. And I think, I mean, I also imagine the young sailor who doesn't know the name Stennis, and who Googles it and is then confused. Yes, Why? I was very convinced by your article. I thought it was wonderful, well-written, and about time.
1: Thank you. We're not talking about Civil War times. We're talking about the height of America's power, mm-hmm. and as one of its most popular presidents made that decision. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, that was really a slap in the face towards the minority population of the United States of America, in my opinion.
0: So, sir, Last question, if you could speak to the CNO about what we're facing as a nation and as a Navy and a military, what would you say to him?
1: I would say to him that it is time to face the past, acknowledge the present and move forward, not just with task forces and groups and study groups. Those have been done for years. There's a 1988 CNO study group that listed 73 separate recommendations. Admiral C.H. Trust put that out. He said in the New York Times in 88, twice, that there was widespread bias and discrimination against uh, blacks in the military. In 1990, June of 1990, Admiral Borda talked about that. And he talked about um, working on those recommendations. We made progress, but there's still ways to go. And here we are in, in uh, 2020, I don't know what progress was made on those 73 recommendations. But I suspect some of the same problems exist. There's a great book called Crimes of Command by Captain Michael Jung. He's a retired uh, Navy captain. He writes about accountability, responsibility, and culpability. The Chief of Naval Operations needs to read that book and get those three concepts down and push that information out to all of his subordinate commanders all the way down to the chief's level. If no one is held culpable, no one is held accountable, and no one is sure who's responsible, nothing is going to change. Mm
0: -hmm. Sir, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out?
1: I think that the current chief of naval operations was exactly the right man for the job. I think that he is cut from the same cloth as Admiral Zumwalt. He is sincere, you could look in his eyes and see the pain as he talked in that video about the pain that our uh, minority, our black citizens are experiencing. I think he's going to get some pushback as his predecessors did, but I think he's the right man for the job. And I'm pulling for him to uh, finally accomplish what uh, they were unable to do. It's going to take, it may take bashing some heads together, but I think he's the man for the job.
0: What a great note to end on, sir. Thank you so much for joining me on What Are You Reading?
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, What Are You Reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.